Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're continuing in our series called Tighten the Knot. If you haven't been with us over the course of the last couple of weeks, we are talking all things marriage. And so if you're not married, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, all of those different things, there are still very applicable things, applicable tomato, tomato, um, that, uh, that you can pull from all these things. So if you're not married, please, please, please don't turn out. But from our vantage point, we spent the first four weeks largely talking about the philosophy and theology of marriage, right? Those big picture pieces like service, pieces like submission and that sort of thing. But in the next few weeks, they decide, we decided simply then, rather than just to simply talk about big picture theology of, uh, of marriage, that we should do our best to get our hands dirty and look at some of the issues that married couples deal with on a regular basis and what it is that the Bible has to say about each of those, each of those things. So last weekend, we talked all about uh, the number one reason that people get divorced, and that's finances, right? And we, so we talked about what, like, what is it that that looks like? What is it our finances should look like amid our marriage? And so we talked about you know, figuring out what we need, figuring out what we, what we want. But above all, if we believe we are here on this earth to make disciples, that our money should also go towards making disciples. And so living a life of extreme generosity should be true of all of us who call ourselves Christians. So that was last week. Um, this week, we get to talk about something very, very different. So before we get to all of that, though, has any, just think to yourself for a second. Have, have any of you experienced some sort of disruption in your life? Right, let, me, let me maybe clarify a little bit for you. Like, you're on your way somewhere and you get a flat tire, right? Like, that sort of, that sort of disruption, okay? For me, there was a, a very real disruption that happened when I was 16 years old. Um, I was 16, and when you're 16, you get your driver's license. So I got a driver's license, and also, when you're 16 and you're the younger child, you get the old, beat-up truck that nobody wants to drive anymore, and you only use to take stuff to the dump, right? Like, that was my truck. So thanks, mom and dad. Um, but so I got that, and, and I was on my way home from my friend's house. We were doing our summer homework. We were, you know, probably very studious as we were doing those things, and I'm driving home from there, and two things are true uh, in this truck. The first thing that you need to know is uh, it was a very old truck, and so because that, it had one of, like, those dial radios, like, not even, like, the push-button ones, like, just straight-up dial radio, right? So um, I'm coming, driving through Atwater, and the radio's kind of fuzzy, and I get the radio worked out a little bit, um, and it comes back on clean. And here's the other thing that you need to know. I was 16, so I thought it was really, really cool. And I also had just gotten sunglasses, okay? So I'm driving down the road, and I have my sunglasses on, and I had just fixed the radio, and I'm looking at myself in the rearview mirror, right? Because I'm 16, and that's what you do when you're 16, apparently. And out of nowhere, there is a car that is stopped right in front of me. Out of nowhere, right? So I swerve, and I try to get around it. And of course, I don't have power steering, so it's miserable. I don't have analog brakes, so I'm like skidding into this really, really nice Jaguar that was stopped right in front of me. Um, and I thought I got around it, and all of a sudden, I hit that Jaguar right behind uh, the driver's side door, my driver's side door. My truck was totaled. Uh, it was like $1,300, I think, for their new bumper. Um, but uh, <laughs> some of you picked up on that. Um, but, uh, but major disruption in my life. And also on top of all that, I felt the need to come clean that the real reason that I ran into that car was because I was looking at myself in a mirror. 
and not because I fixed my radio, which is what I told the police and my parents. So mom, if you're listening to this later on this week, I am so sorry. Um, also, um, just yeah, my conscience feels better now. But, but I was on my way home. I had things to do. I had plans that I had made, right? And I was on my way home from my buddy's house, and all of a sudden, this massive disruption just get, gets plopped into my life. And this one happened, happened to be my fault, Right, but as I was brainstorming this whole series and trying to, trying to kind of figure out what some of the other obstacles maybe are in our, in our married lives, things that would come up, I felt like it was kind of a Holy Spirit moment for me. I felt like the Holy Spirit in my outlining of this series was like, hey, talk about kids. And then in my head I was thinking, well, of course we, we're going to talk about kids at some point. We've got to talk about kids because it's marriage, and oftentimes marriage leads to to kids. This is a marriage series. And actually up until last week, I was going to talk through how it is you and your spouse should raise your kids because that seemed to make sense. But as I got digging into this more and more, I realized that God didn't want me to talk about how to parent kids. He wanted me to talk through how to be married when you have kids. And that's a very different uh, perspective on it. So as most of you know, Sarah and I have five kids. There are so, we have so many kids, like if you are ever like out at your wits end with your kids, just drop one of them off at our house. We won't even know they're there, I promise, okay? Just drop them off. Um, But we have five kids, and we had our first kid the day before our second anniversary, okay? So there wasn't even that much time for Sarah and I to get acclimated into married life without kids before like kids were there, right? It was like we had a year, and then Sarah got pregnant, somehow and then everything was like babies and marriage and all of that all of that stuff after that because we because we had our first kid and kids hear me kids disrupt everything kids disrupt everything they leave no stone unturned when they're babies they play mind games with you by messing with your sleep schedule right like they, like they know that they can't do anything physically to disrupt you, but emotionally they will get the best of you 100% of the time. Like they, can know, they know they can get to you simply by tiring you out. They barf on you just to mess with you. They cry all the time. Babies disrupt everything so well. And the crazy thing is, is your kids will consistently disrupt you for the remainder of their lives. There is no end game. Right? They start, like, like from the moment that that baby is conceived, right? Until the end of your life, they are going to disrupt. Like toddlers, they crawl into your bed and ninja kick you in the face, right? Five to eight years old, they realize how dehydrated they are as soon as they say goodnight to you, right? And it's like up and down. It's like this vicious cycle of I have to go to bed and, or I have to get water and now I have to go pee. I have to get water. I have to go pee. And it just kind of continues. They're up and down always. And then like third through fifth grade rolls around and you think, you know what? Man, I've got this parenting thing down. You can reason with them. They listen for the most part, but between all of like the extracurricular activities, all the motions, all the physical neediness, like all of those things, it's disruptive. And then right as you think you're turning a corner, puberty comes creeping around the corner and it hits you back into like raising metaphorical toddlers again, right? Like it kicks you right in the teeth and clearly obviously being hyperbolic and all this, but the thing that is true is that regardless of the age of your kids, whether they're three months, they're 13 years old, or they're 37 years old, they will disrupt your marriage. Kids will disrupt your, and I say disrupt not be, be, because of the fact that not all disruptions are bad, right? We have five wonderful disruptions at our, in our home currently. Uh, sometimes I wish they were quieter disruptions, but we have five disruptions in our home, and we love them, and we love them deeply, but just because we love them does not mean that their mere existence isn't something that we have to account for in our marriages. 
We have to. Our marriages are the most important earthly relationship that we have, and they need to be protected and cared for in every area of our lives, including parenting. Now, before I push any further into this, I want to talk to a subsection of people in this room. This morning, this topic can be difficult for those people who have struggled or are struggling with infertility. That's hard. That's a very, very real thing. This is what I think you need to hear from me at this point this morning. The mere act of having a kid will not make you more joyful than you currently are. Hear me on that. But God has created you perfectly. He has intention for your life. And so if you are married and you are struggling with infertility, know that God is for you, that he loves you, and we love you just as you are. There is no more value given to you simply because you have kids. Beyond that, just because we are talking about kids this morning and kids disrupting your marriage, do not tune out. Because there's takeaways for every single one of us in this, morning, this morning's message. Because regardless of your age, regardless of how long you've been married, even if you aren't married, I want you to think for a second for something that, that has simply disrupted your day. Maybe it's the car accident that I had when I was 16 years old that really messed up the rest of my couple weeks of my life. Maybe it's something smaller. Maybe it's your kids. I don't know what it is, but, but all of these things are disruptions. Even yesterday, there was a disruption that I had in the middle of my day. It had nothing to do with my kids, had nothing to do with my wife, but there was a disruption that happened in the middle of my day, and because of that disruption, I could no longer focus on being the husband and the spouse that I was called to be to my wife. I was distracted. It got in, it got in my way. It was, it was a disruption. So maybe that disruption, if you don't have kids, or even if you do have kids, maybe that disruption for you is work, that you can't leave work at work, and you're taking the stress of work back home to allow your spouse to, to wear it, and it's disrupting your marriage. Or maybe it's your finances, like we talked about last week, that because of the stress of the situation, it is a, it is a disruption. Maybe it's a frustrating neighbor. Maybe it's even the idea of getting pregnant that is driving the disruption in your marriage. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure that each of us have these disruptions that we then in turn take home and force our spouse to wear them. And that is not healthy and that is not helpful. And oftentimes it can be our kids. So even if you don't have kids, substitute whatever your disruption in your marriage is for kids. So here's the deal with disruptions. If you never had anything in your life that disrupted your marriage, nothing, Nothing that you and your spouse had, had to ever overcome together. My guess is that you would probably have lived a pretty boring life. Congrats on your silver spoon. Congrats on your clean pave, pavement. You just walking along in life and nothing ever get to you. But my guess is, is that if you're here and you're married or have been married, you recognize that there are obstacles that you have to overcome in your life. There's obstacles that you have to overcome in your marriage. And that's a good thing that you're married because God designed man and woman to be together in order to complement one another. So as we work the ground and subdue the earth in Genesis chapter two, you could flip there, that's where we're gonna be, and subdue the earth. We had one another to do so. We had one another to help each other. So we're gonna be in two starting in verse 15. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
And pretty, pretty strict, but God is giving Adam that, that command. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. That was Adam's job, to name all the living things. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, so a couple of things we want to pull from this. First, I want you to notice that in this story, Adam and Eve don't yet have kids. Okay, there is no kids yet in this entire story. In verse 15, it says that God put Adam in the garden to work and to take care of it. Right, that was, that was Adam's responsibility. Hey, you're going to be in Eden. Or, or, yeah, you're going to be in Eden, you're going to be in the Garden of Eden. Your responsibility is to be able to take care of that entire thing. And then in verses 16 and 17, he gives Adam a warning not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hear that. He gave Adam a warning that's going to be an issue later on. And it's after all of this that God says, you know, hey, Adam, Adam, you aren't as good on your own as I had hoped. And you're kind of, you're kind of lonely. We need to get you a helper. But Eve, the woman, she's not created yet. God sent Adam then to name all of the animals in the entire world just to make sure that Adam recognized that none of them were going to be good enough for him as a helper. That's verse 20. And by the way, I just, I love the mental image here I get of Adam like checking in on different wild animals to see if like they're going to be a suitable, suitable helper. You know what I mean? Like that just, I always find it comical. Like he would go to a pig and be like, babe, Thank you. Okay. I was, I was really worried no one was going to get it. First service nailed it, and second service, okay, good. Whoo, okay. Like, hey, babe, because the pig, okay, okay. Babe, you want, you want to help me subdue the earth and take care of the garden? Like, you want to help? No? Okay. Okay, hey, hey, cow, will you help me? Like, it just is a funny mental picture that God forces him to go through and look at every single animal, to name every single animal. To just so Adam knows, there is no one better out here. There is no helper that is suitable for you. And then God knocks Adam out. He plucks a rib from his side and he creates his wife. And then we have verse 24. And verse 24 is important. It says, that's why a man leaves his father and his mother to become one flesh, united to his, united to his wife. Your spouse is the most important human earthly relationship that you will ever have. That's it. Your spouse is the most important one. Here's the fascinating thing about verse 24, though. At this point in the story, Adam and Eve, they have no clue what mother and father means. There's no kids. They didn't have parents. They had God. That was it. 
And so even outside of that idea of having a mom, outside the idea of having a dad, outside the idea of having kids, right now God is saying, this is the most important human relationship you have. That's why you become one flesh with each other. And then my favorite part of the story, Adam and his wife, notice she still isn't even named at this point. Her name at this point is still the woman or his wife. She's not named. And then it says, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, it's my favorite part, not just for a cheap laugh because like, guys, naked and felt no shame. Amen, right? Like, not just because of that. It's my favorite part because at this point in their marriage, there is no disruption. There is no disruption at this point in their marriage. Nothing that is in the way of the two of them being in perfect communion with one another. There's nothing in the way of that. This is the only time in the entirety of, of the human existence that we have man and wife together with zero issue, perfect communion with one another. Why? Because sin has not yet entered into the world. They're perfectly complementary to one another. No shame and no wedge between the two of them whatsoever. I think, like I said, this is probably the only time that we've seen what perfect human intimacy looks like, and we're not going to see it again until Jesus comes back. Because again, at this point, no sin in the world. But then we have to go to chapter 3, because for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through the entire thing. But long story short, Satan goes after Eve. Satan comes in, and if you're familiar with the, the narrative of creation and the fall and all that stuff, I think this happens, this disruption happens for two reasons. I think the first reason this disruption happens is because Adam is not leading his wife in the way that he should have been. God gave Adam a command not to eat from the tree. That's what it says. I have command, like God commanded Adam. He commanded him to eat from any tree in the entire garden, but not this one, Adam. Eve wasn't even existing at this point when God gave Adam that directive wasn't even around, like Eve wasn't even thought of by Adam. And so then all of a sudden this serpent snakes in in chapter three and it's like, hey Eve, you know what you should do? Look at those, look at those not apples. Look at those, that fruit right there. Doesn't that look good for eating? You should have some of that. And Adam is standing right next to her. It says that in Genesis chapter three, six. It says Adam was right there. And Adam fails to lead his wife well. He should have stepped up. He should have stepped into that void. So that's the first reason for the disruption. He knew what was right and failed to lead his wife appropriately. The second disruption is caused because they strayed away from God's intention for their lives. Right? So when this disruption happens, which is the case, in this case, it's sin, we see it in a very real way. Genesis 3, 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. Shame, disruption, sin, entered into the world. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Disruption. They went from perfect communion, perfect intimacy, no shame, a helper suitable for Adam to two people whose relationship was disrupted by an outside force and it changed the entire nature of their relationship. All of it. Because it was disrupted. It causes Adam to hide from God. It causes Adam to blame God, actually. One of my favorite parts of that story is like, God, it was the woman you gave me. It's like, probably not a great call, bro. Like, don't blame God for your sin. 
So he blames, he blames uh, Eve, blames God. It causes Eve to blame the serpent. And so then God punishes them both. He starts by punishing the serpent. And all this is in chapter three. He starts by punishing the serpent, but then God turns to the woman who is deceived and willfully ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? His oracle or his, his curse for her has to do with her relationship. It has to do with her family life. Having kids is going to bring her great joy, but bearing and giving birth to them would require severe pain. So more children would always bring more pain over and over and over again. And so the marriage relationship is now going to be disrupted. The marriage relationship is now going to be strained instead of simply being a source of love and comfort and belonging that the woman would desire and so then that's the first part. It's the first punishment for Eve. The second thing is Adam's punishment. Essentially saying that, hey, Adam, you're, you're going to toil for food. Wherever it is that you are trying to work the land for food, sorry, it's going to be barren. Like you're going to work your entire life to be able to get that food. But then Adam does something interesting in Genesis 3, verse 20. So all of this happens. They have perfect communion. And then there's a disruption that happens. And then the disruption, it goes away. It ends. And then what we have left is Adam and Eve together, trying to figure out life after this disruption. And in verse 20, I think Adam takes the next step forward as he's trying to do his best to get past that disruption. And for the first time, he gives his wife a name. You realize that? Eve had no name before the fall. She, she was called woman. Like, and last I checked, anytime men say that to women, like, call them woman, that's never a good call, right? Like, hey, woman, right? Not good. Hey, Eve, she has belonging. She has a place. She has an identity alongside her husband. And it's the beginning of this mending of their marriage relationship, but there's a disruption. There's something that happens. And so we see tons of disruptions all the time. Like I said, so when it comes to your kids, like we need to understand that regardless of what the disruption is with them, right, whether it's a, an infant who won't sleep through the night and you feel like you're at your wit's end, or it's a teenager that you feel like, man, they are going off the deep end, they're making choices that I don't think they should be making or anything like that, like we have to continue to maintain the importance of our marriage relationship and our relationship with God, regardless of what the disruption is in your life. Why? Because your spouse, your marriage relationship is the most important earthly relationship you will ever have. That's why. So the question becomes then, how, how do we do that? Because God consistently re reiterates that if you are married, that, that relationship is the most important, right? Pastor Brian, uh, Brian Guy, he, he kicked off this series and he was all over Ephesians 5 like six, six weeks ago which reiterates this creation narrative and how Adam and Eve, how those two came about. But it also talks about this in Mark chapter 10, verses, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses six through nine. It says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, we just heard about that, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, they are one. But one flesh, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no one separate. I remember talking to my wife numerous times, and as we were like, talking about what are some things that you appreciate like about your parents' marriage and that sort of thing, that one of the things she said always stuck out is she asked her dad one time about like, you know, her, his, his marriage to, 
Sarah's mom, and he just said, I can't fathom not having my wife with me. She's like my right arm. I wouldn't be able to function nearly as well without her. Why? Because we are two that has become one flesh when we leave our fathers and our mothers and join our spouses. So here's the question. What then does it have to do with kids? What does it have to do with kids? I think one of the greatest tragedies in modern parenting is forsaking your spouse to focus on your kids. Let me say that again. I think one of the greatest tragedies in modern parenting is forsaking your spouse to focus on your kids. And here's why we do it. We do it because our kids are some of the greatest disruptions in our lives. And we only have 18 years with them. So we want to make the best of those 18. We want to make sure they turn out to be the best version of themselves over the course of the 18 years. Here's the problem, though. The word disruption literally means a break in the normal cause of activity. Meaning, the activity that's being disrupted will continue at some point. That activity is going to continue at some point. That's why it's called a disruption, not an ending or not a shift. So at some point, that disruption, whether it be work or kids or financial stress or whatever else it may be, is going to go away in one way or another. And then as you look around, you realize that it is once again you and your spouse. That's it. And we forsake that relationship. And so as we continue to grow together as husband and wife, even when there is disruption, especially when there is disruption, I think there are things we need to continue to do or at the very least begin doing to make sure that our connection with the most important human relationship stays strong. And I think it really comes down to the simplicity of after God, after God, put nothing else in front of your spouse. After God, Put nothing else in front of your spouse. Your job is not more important than your spouse. Your finances are not more important than your spouse. Your grandkids are not more important than your spouse. Hear me. Your kids are not more important than your spouse. Period. Full stop. And I get it. It's more difficult to put your spouse before these other earthly relationships. Why? Because your spouse can take care of themselves, right? Like you forget about your spouse for a little while, like they're going to figure out how to eat eventually, right? They'll get it. At least the guys hopefully will get it at some point. They'll go for microwave burritos and cereal. That's my guess. But they'll figure out, you don't have to worry about them at that point, Right? Why? Because they're going to eat and they're going to take care of their responsibilities. They're going to go to work. They're going to get to different things on time. If they have a nightmare in the middle of the night, they're not going to wake you up and ask you to give them back tickles until they fall back asleep. Right? Your kids don't do that, though. Your kids require attention all of the time. All of the time. Right? And so you think to yourself, well, they just need, they need me more. They need me. That is true. They do need more of your time. That does not mean you can forsake your spouse in the midst of marriage and parenting. One author put it this way. She wrote, loving your kids is like going to school. You don't really have a choice, right? You have to go. Like legally speaking, you have to go to school. You have to take care of your kids. But loving your spouse is like going to college. It's up to you to show up and participate. You have to right? 
Like, like for raising your kids, it's like, okay, legally speaking, I have no choice but to take care of these kids. But in your marriage, whatever, that's on you. That's your call. Like, you don't want to show up for 8 a.m. class? It's going to hurt you in the long run. Trust me, I know, I speak from experience. Biology is not fun to take twice in college. And there's benefits to putting your spouse first. I think we always think about like the difficulty. Let's talk about the benefits a little bit. First of all, it educates your kids, right? If you put your spouse first, it educates your kids. It teaches your children to like what a good example of a godly marriage is. All the way back to the creation narrative, right? Where God was like, hey, look, husband, wife, one flesh, leave mom and dad, most important earthly relationship." But it highlights that having kids, it doesn't destroy a marriage. It can actually amplify the marriage and should amplify a marriage because you get to learn things about yourself, man, you never knew before. You get to become a better version of yourself oftentimes, hopefully. Like I am now more way self-aware than I was when I was 22 years old. When I was 22, I had anger issues. I didn't know that until I became a parent. That'll come out real quick. Like, oh, oh, that's right. He's angry. <laughs> so I'm a better version of myself now because of the fact that I have kids. And beyond that, because of the fact that Sarah has chosen to put me in front of our kids. And beyond that, it shows our kids how to lay down our lives for the sake of somebody else. Right? It ensures that our kids will know that our kids are not at the center of the universe. It starts at home. How do they know they're not the center of the universe? Because I take care of mom first. Sorry. Me and mom are having a conversation. The amount of times I have to say that in my house. Say, hey, me and mom are having a conversation. I'll talk with you afterwards. Right? Just that's a small thing. Say, hey, look, I, I care more about your mom. Your mom gets taken care of first, and then you get taken care of. You are not the center of this universe. Nobody wants obnoxious kids. You want obnoxious kids? Put them at the center of the universe. Next, it fosters, it just fosters happier relationships, happier marriages in general. And happy marriages, they're not, they're not the goal, but prioritizing your spouse cultivates that relationship. Like I said, one day, your kids are going to leave you, but your spouse should be till death do us part. Knowing, knowing that, that neither of you took the other for granted amid the parenting years is huge when you get into retirement and you're alone. And the amount of people nowadays who are getting married once they are empty nesters is just mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowing to me. Why? Because they don't know how to live with one another anymore. When it's just the two of them, they've had these kids as buffers for the last 18, 20, 26 years of their lives. And they have forgotten that the two of them, them and their spouse, has become one flesh. And that's the most important relationship. So that relationship needs to continue to be cultivated. The time that you invest in your marriage will be reaped even after the kids leave the nest, right? A marriage that lasts a lifetime doesn't wait for kids to leave home. It's cultivated from the very beginning. And the last thing that I think is helpful, honestly, I think it, it glorifies God, right? As, as Francis Chan, he's a, a former pastor, author, theologian, whatever you want to call him, he wrote this great book. It's called You and Me Forever. If you're looking for a good marriage book, You and Me Forever by Francis Chan is absolutely nails. But he wrote this, God created marriage to be a picture that displays Christ to the world. Self-sacrifice, right? He also said that there's more at stake to our marriage, uh, in our marriage, than just our marriage. 
Like our goal in our marriages, much like our goal in our finances, shouldn't simply to be to have a happy marriage or to be financially stable. If you have said yes to Jesus, your goal with your marriage should be to disciple people with your marriage, to show people what it looks like to live for Jesus in your marriage, which means taking seriously this cultivation of that relationship. It means taking seriously this idea of putting your spouse before everything else other than God. He says that the gospel is at stake. And any chance that we get to lay down our life for another is an opportunity to glorify and honor God. And our marriage is the perfect opportunity to do so. Why? Because you, in a healthy marriage, in a God-honoring marriage, you die to yourself every single day for the sake of your spouse, the most important human relationship, and more importantly, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of people recognizing that Jesus came and did this for each and every one of us as well, in the same way that we do it for our spouse, that Jesus came and did it for us and, and made that ultimate sacrifice for, for us. So why does this matter? Why does any of this, why does marriage matter? Why does like, the, the disruption matter? Because the gospel matters. Because making disciples matters. Because showing Jesus to the world matters. The way that you treat your most important earthly relationship is a glimpse into your heart for other people. Let me say, let me say that again. The way you treat your most important earthly relationship is a glimpse into your heart for other people. Are you nice and kind and service-oriented toward your spouse all the time? Or are you nice and kind and service-oriented towards your spouse only when it's easy, or only when the house is clean, or only when the kids are in bed, or only when you come to church, or only when you're in public? You're self-sacrificing all the time, or, or just when people can have a better perception of you? That's how we know that this is the gospel or not. You say to yourself, I'm going to die to myself every single day because I am going to serve my wife. I'm going to serve my husband in the same way that Christ came and he served the church. He came and he showed up on the world. And he stretched himself into skin, was born into a barn, and then eventually took on the sins of the entire world. All of humanity literally died for the rest of humanity to be able to live. Man, what a micro, like what a way for us to be able to view our marriage if we simply lived in the same way that Christ came and lived and died for us. I'm not saying go walk into the middle of a freeway just so your wife thinks you're great. Guys, please don't do that. Let's think on a next level here. We're simply dying to ourselves on a regular basis to make sure that we are serving our spouse in a very real way in the same way that Jesus Christ came and died for all of us. If the world saw that Christian marriages were ones that we sacrificed for, for, they were ones that we held the other person up in high esteem rather than tearing our spouse down. Whether it's to their face or even worse, behind their backs. If people saw a biblical example of marriage, even with small things, like opening your wife's car door for her. Hear me, I'm terrible at that. I'm real, why? Because I've got like a thousand other people and the doors, I don't even know what doors are supposed to be open when at this point in our cars. I woke up the other morning and our van door was open all night long. I was like, cool. Someone was being chivalrous for mom, I hope. 
But little things like that, or, or like, guys, when you're at the store, like, buy your wife flowers while you're there and just bring them home. Or, or like, if you're the cook in the family, serve your spouse's meals before you serve your kids their meal. And it's not because you're going to run out of food, right? You're going to have enough food for everybody. But you want to make sure your kids know that they're not the center of the universe? No, mom gets her food first, or dad gets his food first, and then I will serve the rest of you. Small, little things like that. I don't talk about my stepdad much here. Uh, I have a stepdad. Obviously, my mom remarried after my dad um, passed away. This is something that he is so good at, that he, he goes around and opens my mom's door for her every single time. He waits at the table and is stands at his chair until everything is ready, until my mom then sits down and then he will come and he will sit down, waiting, serving her, honoring her to the best of his ability. Why? Because he's dying to himself regularly to make sure that my mom knows that she is loved and that she is cherished in a very real and God-honoring way. These things exemplify the way we should live our lives. It exemplifies it. So my challenge to you this week is just pick one thing. One thing, pick one thing that you can do to put your wife or your husband in front of your disruption. Maybe the disruption is your kids. Great. Serve mom or dad first. Something as simple as that, but maybe it's work. How can you put your spouse in front of work this week? And I'm not saying shirk your responsibilities. I'm not saying don't do the things that you're supposed to do or anything like that. You're you're a responsible adult. You can handle both things. But how can you put your spouse in front of work? Or how is it that you can serve your spouse amid the financial issues? Or how can you serve your spouse amid the speed bump in your life to let them know that after God, they are your first priority and the most important human relationship? Church, I think if we get marriages right, if we get marriages right inside the church, man, we will see so much blessing coming from it. Why? Because disciples are made because of the fact that we are living godly, disciple-making marriages. Amen? Let's pray, church. God, God, thank you for marriage. Thank you for your son. Thank you for um, the fact that he came and showed us what this marriage relationship looks like simply by dying to himself so all of us could live. And I say simply, and we don't take that for granted, Father. Simply, but thankfully. And so, God, I pray right now that that we would be able to identify the disruptions in our life. That we would see those areas of our lives right now in the quietness of our heart that are disrupting our marriage, that are in the way of our spouse, that we are putting in front of our spouse. And God, I pray that you would show us how to remove those disruptions. Help us to navigate that well. Father, help us serve and love our spouses before our kids. And God, maybe for those in here who have not yet thought about this idea of of Jesus coming to earth and literally dying for us so the rest of us could have eternal life. If that's you this morning and you haven't said yes to that, I would encourage you to make a profession of faith and encourage you to continue to pursue Jesus in a real way. But if that's you, 
You can pray along with me this morning and, and make that profession. Simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I have fallen short, and I admit that, Father. But B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me so I could live as he died to himself. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day of my life. And part of that is dying to myself so I could serve not only you, but I could serve my spouse well. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.